This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Katriona Gold. Today, I'm thrilled to be interviewing Mark Philip Bradley, who is the Bernadotte E. Schmidt Distinguished Service Professor of International History and the College at the University of Chicago. The book we're discussing today is called Making the Forever War, and it was published with University of Massachusetts Press earlier this year. The book is co-edited by Mark Bradley and Mary Dudziak. It's an incredible volume, which I'm very excited to discuss with Mark. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks so much, Katerina. It's great to be here. Right. So I want to start by asking you, um, because as we know, uh, this book is a collection of the late Marilyn Young's writing, the subtitle being Marilyn B. Young on the Culture and Politics of American Militarism. So I want to start by asking you, Who was Marilyn Young and why is her work important? It might be nice if you could tell us how you first encountered her work. Um, I can. You know, Marilyn Young, I think it is fair to say, was the kind of preeminent historian of American wars of the 20th century. She had a long and very storied career that was cut short by cancer. Um, I think without the cancer, Marilyn would be busy writing about the fall of Afghanistan right now. She was somebody who was engaged, you know, um, really right until the final days for her. Um, her. The arc of her career really spans the course of the 20th century. So her first book, she was a doctoral student at Harvard University in the late 1960s, um, was looking at American relationship with China right after the War of 1898 and the Boxer Rebellion. And then essentially, you know, over the career, going to the Vietnam War, going to the Korean War, and then into 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, and this sort of period that Maryland would call forever war. Um, I first encountered Maryland around Vietnam and the history of Vietnam. So when I was a young graduate student um, working on my dissertation, then became my first book on the early history of Vietnamese-American relations. Um, that's when I started reading Marilyn's work and, and got to know Marilyn. And in fact, the first time I ever gave a conference paper, which was at um, Schaefer, God, you know, so so long ago now, Marilyn was the commentator. And I don't know, Katarina, if you've had this experience, you know, early on when you're giving those conference papers, you're just really nervous, right? You know, it's the first time you presented your work to an audience beyond your kind of immediate community. And Marilyn was just a remarkably supportive person in the ways in which she gave comments. 
And that was her MO more generally. But for me, it was, you know, the first commentator on the first paper I was giving and someone who was really just saying, yeah, this is interesting. Run with that. Keep going with that. Even though she had, you know, critique about, well, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about the other. But the the overwhelming sense was, you know, this is this is new. This is exciting. And somebody like her with the presence she had kind of validating that was was huge for me. And that began what was a really long um, professional relationship. And then toward the end of her life, a pretty close friendship, I think. Mary had a similar experience, I think, with Marilyn. And what we learned after her death is that dozens of people, you know, had these kinds of experiences with Marilyn, where she came in, intervened at some point on their work, and then carried on a relationship with them as as time went by, which is really nice and, and a bit unusual, you know, in the ways in which the academic world works. So, Mary's work initially was looking at race relations in the United States and trying to think about that in a larger international context. So what was it about the Cold War that was affecting the ways in which American presidents were making policy around uh, civil rights issues in the 1950s and 1960s? But then she shifted to um, thinking about this question of war in the 20th century and wrote an important book a number of years ago called Wartime. And that was one of the books that helped to kind of sketch out this notion about a kind of perpetual war in the United States or a perpetual war footing in the United States over much of the course of the 20th century. So she and Marilyn were, you know, different generations. Mary and I are roughly the same um, kind of cohort, but thinking in very similar sorts of ways. And as Mary has told me, again, Marilyn just kind of inviting her in, read her work, responded to her one day and said, I want to talk to you, Mary, about these things that you've said. And they just kind of went from there. So it's, um, again, an experience I think that many scholars had with her. In terms of the work itself, Marilyn wrote a really seminal one-volume history of the Vietnam War that was used quite frequently in what were then Um, quite common courses focusing on the history of the Vietnam War. I think they're not as much in fashion as they have been. You know, it used to be that Vietnam was America's longest war. It no longer is America's longest war. And so I think those courses have sometimes morphed into, you know, wars of the 20th century, Asian wars of the 20th century. But for a while, you know, the Vietnam War course was a kind of bread and butter course for a lot of diplomatic historians. And so that book got used there, but it was a trade book. So it crossed, you know, outside of an academic audience as well. And that was really, I mean, Marilyn describes that writing that book as a kind of turning point for her. So she had been active in the anti-war movement over the course of the 1960s as a doctoral student and also as a young professor at the University of Michigan. Um, But at increasingly a scholar of the war itself. And so trying to think about how advocacy and scholarship was going to work at the same time, right? Because if you're doing that kind of advocacy work, the last thing you want is for someone to turn on you and say, well, I don't know if that's really scholarship that you're doing, you know, that that there's some kind of position there. So trying to move between those spaces with kind of integrity and rigor, I think was something that she was really thinking through as she was writing that book on the war. It is deeply critical of the United States and of United States policy. It's instructive, and we can talk about this somewhat later in terms of what's happening right now in Afghanistan and thinking about things back and forth. But that's the book that kind of put Marilyn on the map 
for a lot of people, I think. And then there were a whole series of projects around this notion of forever war. And so what we were trying to capture in this book was some of the earlier work on Asian war, which I think was really generative for her thinking about war, you know, as a larger phenomena. And then focusing on kind of late work that was essentially, you know, 9-11 forward kind of work. Um, Some of it had been published. Some of it had not been published. Um, We were able to kind of get into her papers, into um, the archive that NYU, where she taught, has established. So it's a mixture of things that people might have been able to see um, and might not have been able to see, but trying to bring it all together in one place and to give people, again, a sense of what the kind of larger claims that Marilyn wanted to make around war were. Right. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's an incredible contribution then. Um, yeah. Even considering the work of hers that's already out there, this is, this seems like an indispensable volume to have if you want to understand her thought. Um, so how, how did you choose? I'm wondering if you could say more about how you chose um, which essays and articles to include. So it sounds like it's, it's less of a broad overview of her career and, and more focused on particular strands of her thinking, if that's, that sounds about right. Um, maybe you could talk us through uh, some of the chapters or parts of this book. Yeah, so it's essentially divided, I think, into two parts, and that those two parts do sort of map onto different moments Um, in her scholarly career. And it is not, as you say, meant to be a sort of comprehensive, you know, it's it's not (laughs) like Mao's collected works or, you know, that's right. It's, um, you know, it's (laughs) it's selective. Marilyn would appreciate the Mao comment too, I think. I do love Um, that comparison. (laughs) (laughs) um, Again, it's, it's very selective in terms of what, you know, what we wanted to do. And as I say, it, um, I think this is where working with Mary on the project was really great. So Mary came into Marilyn's work later in a sense than I did, but not so much just later in terms of like when we encountered one another, but later in terms of kind of where her thinking was going. And for me, you know, when I was first encountering the work, the notion about how to think about Vietnam in a kind of wider framework for American public policy, for the notion of American warfare, American empire, that was there, but I think it was much more focused around the particularities of Vietnam, or if it was expanded out, thinking about it within an Asian context. So again, my work has been more U.S.-Asian relations, and so that was kind of, again, the lens for me. So what we realized was, to get to where she got, with the kinds of critiques that she was making post 9-11, they really did build on the earlier work. And so to be able to kind of see that trajectory over time made sense in terms of structuring the book. So it opens with an essay that she wrote for um, a project that was going on, this is the early 2000s, that was a project about trying to internationalize or globalize American history. And there were a number of strands of that project. The Journal of American History was quite keen about it. There were a number of special issues that were done at that time. 
And then Tom Bender, who was one of Maryland's colleagues at NYU. Um, NYU has this beautiful villa in Italy where they can run conferences, and they brought a bunch of people together, uh, again, just to be thinking about what it meant to be writing and thinking about American history in the transnational frame. And Marilyn wrote an essay for that, for the volume that came out of that conference, which was, again, thinking about America as a kind of global power, reflecting on where she had been around really early U.S.-China relations, and then Korea, and then Vietnam, and then kind of where she thought that was today. And so it's a nice sort of centering kind of essay because it sort of pivots from where she was to where she was going, and it made sense to open in that regard. And then basically we're moving right into mainly Korean War and Vietnam War territory. And these were Maryland's efforts to think about the ways in which the state approach those wars, manage those wars with American publics. So how did you try to manage the press? How did you try to manage public opinion? How did you just try to manage a narrative? And so, you know, how did Truman do that? Or how did Eisenhower do that, right? And then into into Johnson and Kennedy. And I think those became the building blocks for what she saw as how forever war could work in society. So you know, she's got a, um, there's a really nice thing that we found in her papers. Um, for people who remember the David Letterman show, and he used to do those top 10 lists, right? She has, this is of that moment, right? And she's done a kind of top 10 list of what are the lessons, essentially, the policymakers were learning. And it's a very short, it's just a kind of three page thing. For listeners, if you pick up the book and you want to just go, I think it's the ninth, um, contribution in the volume, um, just in order, you know, and you want to see it all in a nutshell, that kind of puts it there, you know, what, what those lessons were. And they all really get driven by the way in which she's thought about Korea in one sense, but particularly about Vietnam. And part of it is this notion that if you, um, if the war is invisible, the war then becomes easier for the state to manage. And so she's looking for the ways that in some ways presidents and administrations were able to make the actual war not particularly visible to the American people. Well, at the same time that individual soldiers, and this was considered one of the lessons of the Vietnam War, weren't demonized in the ways in which some people felt they were, you know, in the Vietnam period as well. So that you were somehow always respecting the troops, quote unquote, but what it was the troops were actually doing wasn't necessarily widely disseminated, right? So the distance, she argues, between ordinary Americans, except for those who are family members of people who are serving, who obviously have their own ways of understanding, you know, what might have happened there. But for most people, essentially, the wars are just cordoned off. So different than World War II, right? You know, it's not a total war. It's a war that's removed. And that that capacity to remove the war from everyday experiences, again, that she feels after 9-11 reached a kind of apogee. So one of the lessons of Vietnam is you kept seeing footage on television night after night after night after night. One of the lessons is you control that, right? You see less of that. The other is that increasingly you're relying on 
I mean, there's a lot of aerial bombing in Vietnam. Um, there aren't drones in the Vietnam era, but you know, by the time you're at 9-11, there are all kinds of ways to run a sort of techno war that doesn't necessarily put troops and a body count in front of people. And that was another key lesson that Marilyn thought coming out of Vietnam. You know, the body count was on every day when you essentially were watching the evening news. Um, that gets much more diffuse in this period after 9-11. And also the number of casualties on the American side. And that's a distinction that Marilyn really wanted to make. The number of casualties on the other side are often enormous, right? But the number of casualties on the American side are quite small in in those periods of time. So again, using that way of thinking about Vietnam, the lessons of Vietnam, and taking that forward to the ways in which people were explicitly thinking about the later period. And so the second part of the volume, then focusing more on the ways in which those lessons were deployed in one form or another, both in the case of Afghanistan and the case of Iraq. Right. Okay. That's an incredibly helpful overview. So thank you for that. Um, I think, I mean, you've already hinted at this and something I'd really like to ask you um, is the fact that we are seeing a lot of comparisons at the moment, or I, I've been seeing a lot of comparisons between um, US involvement in Vietnam and uh, also in Afghanistan, which is, you know, ongoing or sort of concluding um, as we speak. And I wonder if you'd be able to say how Professor Young's work speaks to this kind of present moment of, yeah, winding down in Afghanistan and all the news we've been seeing about that. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. And I, I've been thinking about that and I've been thinking about what her response might be as, you know, the rapidity of the kind of fall in Afghanistan over the last week or two has been quite remarkable. But not so different, as you say, than the rapidity of the fall of Saigon in you know, April of 1975. Um, there are a lot of times that, Mary and I talk about this a lot, that we miss Marilyn. And I think this is a moment that I do because you, my inclination would be to you know, call her up and say, all right, so you know, what do you, how do you want to think about these two things together? I, you know, I, I don't think speaking for somebody who's passed on is ever a really good idea. So I don't necessarily want to say, oh, Marilyn would say. But I think what I think is influenced in large measure by what I imagine she might be thinking around this kind of question. And I think that one of the fundamental claims that she makes in her work, and this comes through really strongly in the book, is that these wars are inevitably going to be failures. That it is not possible that what the goal is set for the war is ever achievable. And that if you think back around a whole set of lessons of American intervention, um, you know, bracket World War II, but even World War II, there's some more complexities to that, I think, than we've thought about before. But, you know, put that to the side for the moment. It's hard to see an intervention in the 20th century where you can say, yeah, the military intervention coupled with this notion that there's always going to be some kind of nation building that's put into effect 
whether that's in terms of building up some kind of indigenous army or whether that's state making, you know, in a more kind of political sphere. It, and this is controversial because not everybody agrees with this, particularly in the Vietnam case. You know, some people say actually South Vietnam was becoming more of a functioning state, um, particularly under Thieu. So from the late 1960s into the 1970s, it was a slow process, but there was something there. Um, some people go back even further and say, you know, somebody like ZM, who, you know, was the kind of original ruler of South Vietnam, somebody that in Maryland's work and in sort of more, I think, canonical scholarship on the war is heavily criticized, you know, a kind of Americans hoped that they had a puppet in ZM, but in fact, ZM didn't really behave in puppet-like ways, but he was relatively inept in the ways in which he was building a state. And so, you know, that kind of 10-year experiment didn't really get anywhere. Again, people, there are a lot of points of views about all of that. I tend to share Marilyn's notion that for whatever reason, the South Vietnamese state was never able to constitute itself in a particularly effective way, nor was the South Vietnamese military. Now, the caveat to that, and the other thing I think that's true in terms of thinking about Afghanistan and Vietnam, is that a very robust civil society develops in South Vietnam from 1954 to 1975. It, in some ways, is able to flourish in a kind of chaos of the state, right? It's not possible for the state to be repressing in the kinds of ways. I mean, there are moments that the state does try to do that, particularly with the communists, but in a kind of more general civil society way, the chaos of it all allows all kinds of pockets of civil society to begin to flourish in one form or another. That seems to be true in Afghanistan too. So it's the failed state, it's the failed military, it's not necessarily a civil society that's not active in one form or another. And right now, you know, all the comments about Again, civil society leaders in Kabul who, you know, were trying this project or that project and feel abandoned, that's the way in which many South Vietnamese leaders of civil society outside of the state were talking as well. So there, there is that kind of interesting parallel. But at the more meta level, um, the United States is there for, you know, how many years, spending how much money, and in the end, it doesn't accomplish any of the large policy goals that the Americans thought it would. They're not able to build a real state. And in fact, it's not really clear that if anti-communism was the motivation for all of this, that the eventual fall really disturbed things in the fundamental way in which people argued. Again, all this is so clear in Afghanistan too, right? How many years? America's longest war? How much money? There doesn't appear to be an any more functioning state in Afghanistan two weeks ago than there was in South Vietnam in early April of 1975. It also isn't clear that for any traditional national security interest that that work in Afghanistan has necessarily done all that much for the United States, similar to what would happen or what did happen in Vietnam. So her view, I think, would be that it isn't so much a one-to-one -one correspondence between Vietnam and Afghanistan. You can draw those parallels, right, as I just have. But that that very project is just fundamentally a flawed project. 
the notion that a large hegemonic state can manage and fundamentally push a smaller state in particular kinds of directions under kind of you know military control or through the process of war it's hard to see a case where again over the course of the 20th century that work has really been accomplished in the ways in which people think now korea is a strange case and that was a really interesting case to marilyn i mean there it's a stalemate and there in fact in the stalemate you build an incredibly powerful south korea right economically and over time politically as well um but the notion of the war was about a unification of Korea, that Korea, you know, that it was, that it was communism, it was this and that. So it, 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 it's sort of, it's the exception that proves the rule in a sense, right? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, the war isn't what really drives things forward. Although ironically, the war in Vietnam is in part what helps to drive the South Korean economy forward because some of the ways in which that economy grows strong is around the larger American intervention in Vietnam and Southeast Asia in that period of time. So their connections in that way. Um, The other part of the kind of comparison back and forth, I think, is that people over the last couple of weeks across the political spectrum, right? So this isn't, this is deeply politicized and yet, it's a shared sentiment, are just surprised. How could it happen so fast, people say. But what they don't say is how could it happen? How could it happen so fast? And you know, those who are critical of Biden right now wanna say, well, he could have managed this better. But in a strange way, that suggests that at a fundamental level, people have said, it was over, that there wasn't really much that you could do about it. So you're managing a bad situation, but it would suggest that the critique is more widely shared than people think, right? Um, That there is some kind of sentiment at this point that the forever war isn't advancing American interests in the way in which it might. That seems to be shared on the far right, and that seems to be shared on the far left, right? And and kind of across the spectrum. So much of the discussion right now becomes like, people could manage a bad situation better. Fuck, maybe they could, maybe they can't. I'm a historian, I don't really have to worry about, you know, the particularities of that at the moment. But the larger, the larger notion that, yeah, this was, this was coming, um, seems there, and yet, And this is where I think, you know, American wars get really complicated to understand. There's still a surprise. There's still a sense that, wow, they were that weak. They had no capacity to resist that, you know, that there's just some sense that like, wow, after 20 years, there'd be some threshold there. And that surprise is a kind of reminder that the mindset of people are tired of the war, but the mindset may not have changed. It was the same in April of 1975. People couldn't believe how fast it all happened because there we had been trying to strengthen a military, trying to build a state. And in a month, 
has gone, right? And I don't think that people grapple with the larger implications of that, right? So they didn't grapple with it when you moved from a kind of Vietnam situation to an Afghanistan or Iraq situation, because there you had people in the military who said, well, they didn't do it right in Vietnam. But actually, there's a way to do it. Counterinsurgency could work. Um, a variety of nation-building things could work. Again, we've learned lessons. We're going to take those and we're going to put them in these other settings. Again, a sense that like all settings are the same, doesn't matter <laughs> what the conditions of place are. You just sort of move things from one place to another. Um, but that hasn't turned out to be true. It hasn't turned out to be true that it was the implementation that was a problem. What seems to have turned, what seems to be quite clear now, and really was at the end of Vietnam, but I don't know how people could defend it now, is that the fundamental notion that you can socially engineer in those kinds of ways doesn't work. It's not about tactics and strategies. It's about the sort of larger sense that as a powerful country, you have the capability of making these changes. And to do it, it's just a matter of tweaking it here or there. But how you can watch what's happened over the last couple of days or last couple of weeks and still hold on to that, I don't know. And maybe that's going to be a moment for people to have a different kind of conversation about war in the United States. Again, this is not a good time in the United States for people to be having calm conversations <laughs> that aren't deeply politicized. So I'm not sure in this moment how far the conversation could go. But there are signs that there is a shared sense about the necessity to let it go. It's just once you've gotten out of that place, do you then step back and think about the larger motivations around the policy or do you stumble into you know another another cycle of it um, at a later period and it's hard to know right but um quite possibly we've not sort of seen the end of the forever wars in in that sense if those lessons aren't aren't learned yeah 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 no, it's okay. a kind of like it's a moment where the, it could be a kind of major sort of like pivot for people's thinking about this or not. And, you know, there are elements here that would suggest that it could really shift a kind of paradigm. But as you say, I think there's all kinds of kind of ending elements that would say that moment's going to get lost and that the basic condition. Um, it's, it will continue forward, which is a kind of de a depressing thing to think. But I think, you know, for people who were um, thinking about Vietnam and were making arguments that it wasn't just about changing tactics and strategies, but there was something fundamentally flawed about what it was the Americans were doing in Vietnam. Um, I think it was very disappointing for people that those, the lessons that were learned to the extent that lessons are learned were the wrong lessons, in a way, from Vietnam, at least in the kind of public sphere. It'll be interesting to see what, how people kind of reconstitute the meaning of Afghanistan, you know, when the immediacy of the fall has passed. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But that's that's a really helpful way to sort of start start thinking about that. Um, yeah, I mean, from there, um, one of the things I, I really wanted to ask about that seems sort of even more pressing now, um, given certain discourses about the war in Afghanistan, um, is how Marilyn Young's critical stance on war connected um, with her feminist analyses and whether we see that play out in this volume. And I'm, I'm thinking of that especially because, well, there is, there is one of the things that does seem uh, different about Afghanistan to me is that sort of feminist argument for war that, that was sort of at the forefront um, in that case. And I'm wondering if there's, you know, a counter to that or um, in her work or, yeah, how, in general, how those kind of intersect. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. You know, Marilyn was firmly in the second wave feminist traditions, right? So, you know, it was the radicalization in the 1960s for her and then the ways in which she was able to take that forward in the 1970s were incredibly important for her as a person, but also really important for her scholarship. And she was actively engaged in what was a second wave project in the academy of beginning to develop what then were women's studies programs, right? Sort of sort of gender and sexuality was kind of the next phase of that. But in that moment, it was women's studies. And she was an assistant professor at the University of Michigan after she finished her degree at Harvard. And she was part of an experimental college at the University of Michigan called the Residential College. I was an undergrad at Michigan, so I kind of had some sense about, you know, what the valences of these things were. And by the time I got there, you know, in the late 1980s, the, the sort of radicalism of the early 70s had passed. But the Residential College remained a kind of place set apart. And much of the sort of I don't know, the spirit of kind of the new left and, and the kind of second wave feminism was still very much the way in which um, the residential college was operating. And what I came to learn later was that, in fact, Maryland was instrumental in that sort of culture moving forward. But I think the way that it comes into her scholarship and to more directly address the question that you're asking was that that approach, and again, thinking about her as a kind of new left scholar and a feminist scholar simultaneously, right? So it wasn't, it was one or the other, but the two were, you know, bound up in the ways in which she was thinking about the world, that it was a structural argument about where inequities and injustices were operating in the world. It was, you know, to some extent, it was about um, economic inequality but it was also about gendered inequalities. And it was, again, a, a sense of like trying to think in big, big structural terms about where there were problems and fault lines in the way in which the world worked. So for Marilyn, you know, she was a part of a tradition in American diplomatic history that we now call like revisionist history. But I don't think that really helps listeners understand what it was about. It was a reaction to a traditional kind of diplomatic history that in some ways, if it didn't celebrate what the state was doing, it was relatively neutral about what it was the state was about. So it would 
narrate the ways in which presidents and diplomats and military people were making choices, but it didn't fundamentally go to, uh, again, a structural explanation for problematics about how the United States was a hegemonic power in the world. So Marilyn, William Appleman Williams, Walter Lefebvre, who uh, was at Cornell, recently passed away um, just in this last year, were part of a wider group of people who were bringing this kind of new left perspective into the study of what we would call now America and the world. And again, a very critical perspective on what it was the Americans were up to in the world. That inflects all of the way, you know, Marilyn's work on war works. Marilyn was the only one of that group, though, who was simultaneously thinking in feminist ways as well. Because one of the things about the new left is, and again, I don't want to necessarily suggest everybody in the new left, you know, had, had no interest in um, issues of feminism or gender, but it was in a more minor key for many of the men who were, you know, leading that scholarship. And so Marilyn's voice was particularly important there as a, as a loud, powerful, and important voice in thinking about where feminism and gender might play a role in that kind of work. Um, so... That said, she struggled in more recent times with the ways in which gender was being used around Afghanistan. She was skeptical of the kinds of claims that the American state was making, particularly the Bush administration was making, about that as truly a motivating force in what it is the United States was about. But she also felt that she was running a kind of tightrope with that because she was deeply sympathetic to those members of Afghan civil society who were concerned about women's issues, were concerned about that within relation to the Taliban. And so it's, it is a tightrope, right? To, on the one hand, want to call out what she believed to be a kind of window dressing by the Bush administration, while at the same time to have a fundamental commitment to what was happening on the ground. And that was a tension that, you know, moved through some of her earlier work too. She did uh, a volume called Promissory Notes that was about women in socialist countries. She did that with a colleague at Michigan who worked on Russian and Soviet studies. And that tightrope was there was a rhetoric within many of, you know, in the Soviet Union, but particularly in China, about the ways in which communism was liberationist for women. But that was a really complicated kind of thing. And the state propaganda about that and the lived experience on the ground were often quite different. And so how do you both interrogate the state discourse and yet find solidarity with women in China, say, where your ability to, at that moment, interact with people back and forth was limited. You know, who were you meeting? How much were people able to talk about what experiences were? So she'd seen all that in the context of China. She also knew um, there's a whole network of Vietnamese women who are involved with the National Liberation Front um, during the war, who are essentially diplomats for the National Liberation Front. Um, She knew and met many of those women. Again, trying to think about how autonomous they were from the state in Vietnam. Again, another kind of tightrope. It's not, they were not puppets, but they were not, 
innocent of necessarily the wider kind of politics that shaped the socialist state in Vietnam. So I think one of the things that's really nice to see in kind of looking back at how she struggled with these kinds of issues is that we continue to struggle with that. The question of gender is a complicated one. It doesn't have a kind of black-white answer to it. And she was right in the middle of what those complications were like, but she wanted that issue to be front and center in the ways in which people thought about these questions, and she wanted it to be thought about in all of its complexity, right? She didn't want it kind of reduced into one thing or another. It's, um, I think from, you know, the perspective of 2021, it's hard to appreciate what a pioneer she was around those kinds of issues. But, you know, the number of women in the academy when Marilyn was coming up was small. And given her field around, you know, what was then U.S. diplomatic history, the number was really, really tiny. And the ways in which, you know, gender functioned in terms of scholarship, in terms of rewards, in terms of, you know, who was invited in to teach here and you know, again, a very difficult moment for a woman to be moving through the academy. But Marilyn was tough. And she, you know, she moved through. She never really compromised. And again, was able to find ways to talk across. So Marilyn was not necessarily like a fun, cuddly person. But Marilyn was somebody who, even if she knew the person on the other side of the dais was totally in a different realm analytically than her. She'd figure out a way to both hold to her guns and to have a relationship with that person. And again, I, I think that, that there's a kind of remarkableness about that. So again, a, a person who had powerful views on things, but it didn't operate in the landscape that we too often operate in now, right? Where the polarization seems to just prevent conversation. She could have, <laughs> she could express strong views, but she could also have a conversation with people around those, which was, I don't know, you know, a legacy that I hope somehow can get taken forward in, you know, these more complicated times too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's you've spoken so eloquently about that. And yeah, that's something that takes tremendous strength to do, I think. Um, yeah, listening to that, that sounds, it sounds like an absolutely exhausting kind of, you know, project, right? Um, to maintain those, those feminist commitments while moving. And so, yeah, in that kind of environment. So yeah, all the more credit um, to her. Um, yeah. So I think um, as we draw to a close, I would like to ask you um, if there's anything else you'd like to mention that we didn't cover so far in this interview, um, and also if there's anything else coming up to sort of honor or commemorate um, or further explore Marilyn Young's work. I know that the Quincy Institute recently hosted a discussion about the book and her legacy, and that's available on their website. Is there anything else that you would like to mention? Yeah, a couple of things. The Quincy Institute um, invitation, you know, came from Andrew Besevich, who runs the center and also was a friend of Marilyn's and wrote um, 
a kind of afterword to the volume. And that afterword, I think, is something that listeners may want to take a look at as well. He's, you know, we, Mary and I write an introduction that's trying to kind of put this in a sort of like arc of the career and thinking about the sort of larger arguments that emerge. He's talking about it at the end of the book from more of a, you know, they were, they never collaborated formally in writing, but they were often doing events and conversations together. And, you know, trying to think a little bit inside how Marilyn was thinking at that point. Um, And I think, again, it's another example of the kinds of forms of solidarity that she was able to establish, right? They aren't, they didn't see the world eye to eye all the time, although they shared a certain set of assumptions. But once once you got from that point, they, they moved in all kinds of different directions. And it's interesting in the afterward to see Andrew talk a little bit about how he navigated that and his appreciation for the ways in which Marilyn navigated that as well. We're going to do um, a seminar on the book as part of the Washington History Seminar. So that's something that's sponsored by the Cold War History Project at the Woodrow Wilson Center and also by the National History Center. Um, if, if listeners just Google up Washington History Seminar, uh, the schedule for the fall will pop up. On October 11th, um, they've invited uh, Mary and me in to talk about the book. But we're also going to have two other people join us in that conversation. Uh, Monica Kim, who was Marilyn's colleague at uh, NYU uh, and has written a prize-winning book recently uh, about um, sort of the interrogation rooms of the Korean War. Monica just moved to the University of Wisconsin, and so she'll be coming from there. And then Melanie McAllister, who, you know, wrote this really big book about um, American um, images and impressions of the Middle East, some of which are involving war. Um, and Melanie's going to be on hand there too. Melanie is at George Washington University. So the four of us trying to talk about, um, you know, the same kinds of issues, I think, that we've been talking about today, but just expanding that conversation out into three other perspectives on um, how Marilyn thought about that and the ways in which it's affected their work too. So if people want more, I, I'd encourage them to sign up. There's a, you, you, only so many people can be in this, so they close it out. So if you're interested, just, just pull it up and, and you can sign up and get a space. All right. Okay. I'm sure we'll be seeing uh, an influx or you'll be seeing an influx of, uh, yeah, after, after this podcast, that sounds fascinating. Um, well, it's been wonderful talking with you today, Mark. So thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk a little bit about the book and to talk about, um, about Marilyn and, and the kind of really, I think, again, seminal role that she's played in the field in thinking about such a fundamental part of American history over the last century, right? Making sense of American war. In, in some ways, there's nothing more important than that. And again, her, her voice has been really important. I think for a younger generation of scholars, particularly, to just get their hands around, where, what was she saying? What she was thinking about? And how they might be able to build or take those insights into different kinds of uh, realms as, as we go forward. Absolutely. Yeah, very well put. And I think that's an excellent place for us to close. So thank you, everyone, for listening. 
I'm Catriona Gold, and I've been speaking with Mark Bradley, who is the co-editor, along with Mary Dudziak, of Making the Forever War, Marilyn B. Young on the Culture and Politics of American Militarism. The book is out now with University of Massachusetts Press. And if you need any more reason to pick up the book, I'd like to note that the royalties from the book are being donated to the Marilyn B. Young Memorial Fund at New York University, where she was a professor for many years, which promotes scholarship and dialogue on U.S. foreign relations, American wars and militarism, anti-war activism and decolonization, which I think is beautiful. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone else, for tuning into the New Books Network. And until next time, happy reading.